0: That I can see struggling. Don't you think that I can feel your pain? I hear your cries every time in the middle of- Welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullet. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube. you can search for and subscribe to the channel there. You can also find us in iTunes with your favorite podcast catcher. Just search for Logical Belief. You should be able to find us. If you want to see past uh, episodes, uh, you can just click on Podcast in the top menu bar at the website, and you should be able to find previous episodes there. If you uh, have a question or a word of encouragement, uh, you can send those to jason at logicalbelief.org, or you can also do so from the contact page on the website i have received uh, quite a few messages from different listeners um, even in australia and uh, those are tremendously encouraging so um whenever you guys send me messages to encourage me to keep on going uh, i really appreciate that so um know that that really uh, helps me so um <clears throat> This next weekend is going to be the Ohio Fire Conference put on by Striving for Eternity Ministries, so we'll play the ad for that one last time, and uh, none of you guys sent me any funds to to go to that, so I won't be attending personally, but uh, um, hopefully uh, some of you guys will go to that conference and be edified and encouraged in sharing the gospel.
1: Ohio Fire is coming to Columbus, Ohio, April 8th and 9th. Hosted by Striving for Eternity Ministries, Ohio Fire will encourage and train Christians to mature in their faith and share the gospel with the lost. Hear Phil Johnson and Dr. Thomas White on the topic, the Word of God. And after the conference, you'll have a chance to hit the streets of Columbus with trained team leaders. Ohio Fire, April 8th and 9th. For details and to register, go to OhioFire.org.
0: Alrighty, Well, last uh, week um, I had a, a very interesting discussion with an atheist on the show, uh, Christopher Mouty. So I want to thank him for coming on the show uh, so that we could do that. And uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed the time. Um, but there was one comment that he made at the end of the show that I wanted to expound on and I wanted to address a little bit more thoroughly Uh, than what I did in the conversation itself. And I'm going to uh, be sending Christopher uh, the section of today's podcast where I address that, so if he wants to respond to that, um, he can do so. Um, But the comment, and towards the end of our conversation, that I I wanted to address more thoroughly was in reference to his uh, statement that um, he is being more intellectually honest because he's just saying, I don't know when it comes to accounting for morality and consciousness. So I'm going to go ahead and transition the screen here so you guys can see Christopher. Um, I'll play his statement. I'll play my response to it during the podcast, and then we'll um, expound on it a little more. So let me go ahead and transition the screen. Um, So there's Christopher. I'll just go ahead and start
1: the video from there. And not knowing, having not having the certainty that you have may not have value to you. You may want the certainty of being able to justify and account for the morality and consciousness. I'm not so brazen as to think that I need the certainty that it seems that you... um, you seem to be holding against me saying, I don't know one person's uh, inability to account for things is another person's being intellectually honest. I value being intellectually honest and therefore I don't know is a completely acceptable answer because I would rather have questions that are unanswered than un- than uh, unquestioned answers. Now, would you say that you're certain that you don't know, though? Am I certain that I don't know? Um Am I certain that I don't know? That's that's a weird way of phrasing things. Well, because uh, you were saying that I have certainty.
0: So what I'm trying to expose is that you have uh, certain beliefs also.
1: You have certainty. I believe that there are things that I am certain about. I believe that certainty exists on a continuum. I have maximal certainty. That...
0: Okay, we'll uh, just uh, stop it um, at that point. Um, what I really wanted to uh, address more thoroughly and, and the way that I did it in the podcast was I just uh, I tried to demonstrate to Christopher that he is just as certain <laughs> of his lack of certainty um, as I am. So he's really in the position of the pot calling the, the kettle black. But I wanted to explore uh, this a little bit more because the first thing I I want to uh, address is is Christopher. What you're actually doing here is you're begging the question, because to say that your position of "I don't know" is more intellectually honest assumes that your worldview is true. Because if my worldview is true, if the Christian worldview is true, then to say I don't know where morality and consciousness comes from is actually, actually blasphemous, is actually a sin within my worldview. So it's not being intellectually honest within my worldview. Within my worldview, it says in Romans chapter 1, it says that all men know that God exists, and all men know his righteous decree. And so, therefore, within my worldview, it's not intellectually honest— So to say that I don't know is intellectually honest assumes, begs the question, that your worldview is true in the first place. So that's the first thing I wanted to address. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was that you're borrowing, in that statement, you're borrowing capital from my worldview. Um, uh, In that statement, you pitted my worldview against yours, which mine had certainty and makes claims, uh, you called them unquestioned beliefs, but you, you said that your position was more intellectually honest. Well, here's the problem with that, Christopher, is that your worldview can't account for being intellectually honest being better than being dishonest. That's borrowing from my worldview. You're assuming that it's universally true that we ought to be intellectually honest. And you reveal that by your comparison of your beliefs to mine. But by doing that, however, you're borrowing capital, as Van Til would say, you're borrowing capital from the Christian worldview— because your position, from your position, you can't account for a universal truth that says we ought to do anything or anything is good or better um, if we do it. So you're borrowing from my worldview by saying intellectually honest is a good thing, and you're also begging the question when it comes to simply assuming uh, your worldview in that statement. So um, I just wanted to address that um and wanted to see if you had any thoughts uh Christopher on that so I'll send you a link to that and you can respond if you want to uh another thing that I wanted to talk about is I was planning on having the realistic nihilist um on the show uh he did not make it he did uh follow up with an email saying he just didn't make it um but uh I there was something I was going to bring up with him when he uh came on the show let me uh, change screens here Uh, when he uh, was originally planning on coming on the show I was going to ask him a question uh, based upon um, a particular claim that he makes uh, that I've seen on his website now I would actually play his video If it didn't contain all the profanity that it does so that's why I'm not going to play his video on what he calls the omnipotence paradox and so I'll try to summarize his omnipotence paradox and then I want to address it but I wanted to address it with him on the show so I'm going to send him a link also uh, to this section of the podcast. But I wanted to do this in case those of you as Christians out there um, encounter this particular claim. Now, this this is something I don't even know. I should have done some research on uh, when this omnipotence paradox uh, was initially developed. Um, I don't think it's a paradox whatsoever, um, and I'll, I'll briefly summarize it. Basically, you've probably heard the statement, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? And then they say that that refutes the position that God is omnipotent. Um, so the first thing we're going to have to uh, deal with is what he says in his video is he holds to that, and he says that uh, this is different than the question that can God make a square circle, or maybe can God make a married bachelor, uh, which those are logically self-contradictory. And so he claims that uh, the realistic nihilist makes the claim that the question, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it, is not logically impossible. Because it's—so uh, it's, it's not a—so the question itself is not a self-refuting, logically impossible statement. That's his claim. Because he says that he, or anybody else, any human being could make a rock so big, That we couldn't lift it and that is that's not a logical self-contradiction. This is the problem, though. With that claim is you're making a category error. You are comparing what is not logically impossible for a non-omnipotent being to refute an omnipotent being. In summary, you're claim in the omnipotence paradox is, can God use his omnipotence to keep himself from being omnipotent? (laughs) That is a self-refuting statement. That is self-contradictory. Can God use his omnipotence to keep himself from being omnipotent? That is the same as asking God to make a square circle uh, or a married bachelor. There's no difference. Um, The problem is you're making a category error. Yes, as a non- omnipotent being, As a non-infinite being, um, I can make something so big that I can't lift it. So that's not a logical impossibility for me, but I am within the category of a non-omnipotent being. God himself is an omnipotent being. And we also need to properly define omnipotence. Uh, Your definition in your video is incorrect, and straw man's um, what— uh, what we as Christians would claim first of all, your definition in your video says and I should have actually copied down your exact definition that you used but is uh anything or uh, God's ability to do anything that is not logically impossible um, and i would I would actually go a little further uh, with that you also say that. Um, Omnipotence is meaningless because we as Christians also define omnipotence as God's ability to accomplish um, whatever he desires, which is consistent with his, uh, uh, whatever he desires, consistent with his nature, that God can do whatever he, and he, and he, and you make the claim that by that definition, we as human beings are also omnipotent because we can do whatever is consistent with our nature. Um, However, That is not the definition of omnipotence. Um, Omnipotence is God's ability to accomplish whatever he desires. His desires and will are consistent with his nature. There is nothing outside of God that can hinder or prevent the actions of his will. And by that definition of omnipotence, we as human beings are not omnipotent. God's nature and God's... uh, on toss who he is can prevent me can hinder me from performing actions that are even consistent with my nature God prevents people from doing things all the time that they desire the difference is because God is omnipotent there is no one outside of his own nature and being that can prevent him from performing any action that he ever wants uh, we can see this in and actually I wasn't even prepared to do this but Let's let's just see what Scripture itself says about God, and this is in uh, Daniel chapter four. And I should just have this memorized uh, better, so I would be more prepared to do this. But this is in Daniel chapter four. Um, I love this passage. It uh, begins in verse um, uh, thirty. Well, I'll start reading in verse thirty-five of Daniel chapter four. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now that is the biblical definition of omnipotence. There is nothing outside of God's nature. There is no human being. There's nothing outside, no force outside of his nature that can prevent him from accomplishing whatever he desires according to his own volition. Nothing. And so you're argument collapses you're saying that can god use his omnipotence to keep himself omnipotent keep himself from being omnipotent and then you're saying that the definition we as christians have of omnipotence is meaningless because it's simply you know somebody doing what they can according to their nature but that's not our definition of omnipotence and so um what you're asking is is logically impossible, is a self-refuting um, claim, and also you're strawmanning our definition of omnipotence. Um, there was something else I was going to say on that, and I don't recall. So yeah, oh I yeah I also wanted to summarize it uh, that you are making a category error because you are comp- you are comparing what is logically pot impossible or logically possible for a non-omnipotent being and comparing that to the category of an omnipotent being. Uh, So you're making a category error there also. So um, I would encourage you to please respond. If you don't have a response, take the video down. It's inaccurate. You're straw manning, you're uh, you're asking a self-refuting question, and you're making a category error. So Um. All righty, sorry about that. I need to get uh, ready here for the next part of the episode that I wanted to... Uh, go through today. And uh, this is something I've been wanting to do for a while, and that is I wanted to go through um, some of the Trinitarian and Christological heresies that have existed uh, within the Church um, so as to equip you to be able to identify uh, these particular heresies, to recognize them uh, when you see them, and uh, uh, and so that you can uh, properly uh, deal with them. So In today's episode, I'm going to focus on uh, Trinitarian heresies uh, themselves, and uh, we'll do another episode on uh, Christological uh, heresies. Uh, So the Trinitarian heresies are not uh, as nuanced and as in-depth as a lot of the Christological heresies that exist, Um, and there is obviously some cross. Depending on what uh, Trinitarian heresy that you propose, it's going to affect your Christ Uh, your Christology Uh, there's no doubt about that but uh, we'll not delve into that uh, too much today so I'm going to go ahead and transition the screen here I've got a short little presentation uh, that I threw together again this morning I seem to have a bad habit of doing that uh, getting my presentations ready uh, a few hours before um, the podcast but uh, so I just wanted to uh to go through this, and so we'll start here, and we'll just we'll talk about uh, some of the different uh, heresies that have existed. We'll explain what they are, and then we'll go through some scripture and uh, refute um, briefly. We won't go in depth, but uh, briefly refute uh, and uh, defend the orthodox Trinitarian view um, of the Godhead, and so. Let's just go ahead and look at some of these different terms and I want you to be familiar with them uh so that you know how to effectively use them uh when you are having discussions with anybody from a Jehovah's Witness to a oneness Pentecostal um or just your run of the mill Aryan or you know, whoever you're encountering, so or your uh even encounters with uh with uh, Muslims. Uh, a lot of times you'll encounter uh, Trinitarian errors. So, the first thing I want to look at is uh, monarchianism. And this is uh, basically synonymous with the term Unitarianism. And underneath the header of monarchianism, you have modal monarchianism, also just known as modalism. And then you have uh, different uh, flavors, you could possibly say. There's just, they're slightly nuanced, there's not that much difference. Uh, in them, and that is civilianism and Patripassionism. Uh, both of these are for, forms of modalism or modal monarchianism. And so uh, we'll, we'll look at these and the definitions of these uh, more clearly. And then we also have dynamic monarchianism, which underneath this would fall uh, heresies like Arianism and the Jehovah's Witnesses, which are basically just a modern Arian group. And then uh, you have on the opposite end of the scale, you have tritheism. I have a little uh, graphic that I put together over here. We have on the far left, we have tritheism, which is the belief that there is three beings or gods and three persons. Uh, It would fall into the category of polytheism, many gods. uh, But in particular, this would just be three gods. Now, Because Christianity and Judaism has been so strongly monotheistic, uh, a lot of your tri-theistic heresies, uh, there's very few, where you end up having the most heresies within the Christian faith is over on the far right of the scale, and that is Unitarianism. Now in the middle we have the Orthodox Trinitarian view, uh, Christian view of the Godhead, and the nature of God, and that is God is one being, uh, and that infinite, eternal, uh, immutable uh, being of God is shared coequally and coeternally by three distinct uh, subsistences or persons. And then over to the right, you have Unitarianism, which is, uh, is falling off from the Orthodox view, and that is there is one being of God and one person of God. And then underneath that, you know, falls modalism, um, dynamic monarchianism, monarchianism, and uh, civilianism, uh, and so forth. Arianism would all fall in the category of Unitarians. And so uh, the first one uh, I'm just going to go into and define these a little bit more is monarchianism. Uh, it comes from the word mono, which is one, and arche, or arche rule. Um, and so we have monarchianism, teaching that there is one God and one person, and is synonymous with the term Unitarianism. So uh, a monarchian, a Unitarian, uh, same thing. Uh, they're just uh, the same term uh, or a synonymous term. Now, underneath... Uh, Monarchianism or Unitarianism, we have modalism, and we have that there's one God and person existing in different modes. So sometimes he exhibits himself within his creation in one way, Uh, some other times uh, he uh, exists in creation in other ways. So in other words, God extends himself into his creation in different ways and in different modes, but he is one person. There's only one person in the Godhead. This is the most common heresy. In fact, a lot of new Christians, uh, since a lot of churches don't uh, effectively teach the doctrine of the Trinity, will spout uh, some sort of modalistic uh, response often when they're questioned on the Trinity itself. In fact, when I became a Christian uh, about five years ago, four and a half, five years ago, um, it was soon after that that when I talked about the Trinity, I in fact spouted some modalistic type language. Uh, it was uh, the spirit of God leading in truth in the scripture um, and good teaching that brought me to the understanding of um, uh, of the proper view of the Godhead. and uh, modalism is also known as modal monarchianism, which I already mentioned. So underneath modal monarchianism and modalism, we have Sebelianism. Sabellianism uh, was most popular within the Eastern Church, uh, Constantinople and, and uh, you know the Eastern portion of the Church, uh, the Eastern part of the Mediterranean, and uh, was named after Sabellius. He was a third-century priest and theologian who most likely taught in the area of Rome. Uh, we don't know for sure. Um, he taught a form of dispensational modalism, which means that God uh, demonstrated himself within different dispensations of time in different modes. Uh, so in the Old Testament, uh, he displayed himself in that particular dispensation in a different way in the Incarnation of Christ. He He uh, revealed the one person and the one being of God revealed himself um, in that dispensation in the Incarnation of Christ. And then uh, we have the Holy Spirit, which is the uh, uh, the mode that God is uh, in uh, displaying himself in this dispensation. Uh, this, as I mentioned, was most popular in the Eastern Church and is really what uh, oneness Pentecostals today, even though they would deny, uh, many of them would deny that they're civilians, uh, would be a form of civilianism. Uh, we also have patripassionism, uh, which comes from the Latin uh, pater or pater. Patri for father and passio, which means suffering. It just literally means that the father suffered. And so, since you're a modalist, if somebody's a modalist, well, then who was crucified? If if Jesus was God, and God is one person and one being, then the father was the one who suffered uh, for our sins. So this is where we get the term patri. Uh, patripassionism. It was most popular in the Western Church as a form of modalism, and the oneness Pentecostals would also kind of fall within this category, except they're usually actually referred to more as and than patripassionism. But uh, we also have dynamic monarchianism, which is uh, a different view. Uh, teaches that God is the Father and that Jesus is a different being. He's not God. Now, if you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll tell you that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, um, some form of Arians, well, Arianism would say that Jesus was just a man, um, and so you have different forms of dynamic monarchianism. but uh, they don't, they wouldn't hold to the modalistic form necessarily, but they would teach that there is only one God, and it is the Father, and that uh, the Holy Spirit is either a force, which is the way the Jehovah's Witnesses would describe him. He's not a person. He's not a personal being. He's simply a force, kind of like electricity is a force. And that uh, Jesus was just a man, or he's an angelic being. Or some Jehovah's Witnesses would fall into the category of henotheists, which is really, with their perversion of John chapter 1 in the New World Translation, um, which says in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God, uh, would lead to a form of henotheism, uh, which henotheism would would be the position that there is one ultimate being of God, and then there are some lesser deities that also are deserving of some level of praise and worship. Uh, so, it kind of fall into the category. It's kind of a polytheistic type thing, but uh, would fall henotheism that there's still one ultimate being of God. And they would teach that this is the Father and that Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit are not um, the Holy Spirit not being personal. Holy Spirit simply being a force and uh, Jesus being some other type of ontological being separate from the Father. Another uh, heresy that would fall into this is adoptionism. Adoptionism says that... Um, Jesus was born a normal man, just like we are, and that uh, at his baptism, most most of the time uh, adoptionists will say that at his baptism, uh, he was indwelt with the, the being and the nature of God. Uh, God adopted him as his son, um, and he was indwelt with uh, either the force of the Holy Spirit or by the Father. Now, there's different flavors again, but they would all fall into the category of Dynamic monarchianism, and then you have tritheism, which, as I said, is not um, is not a very common Christian heresy because of the fact that Christianity and Judaism has always been so strongly monotheistic. Um, the Jews and Christians uh, would all equally hold to. The Shema, which is in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So uh, Christians have always been uh, monotheistic, and so uh, tritheistic heresies are not nearly as common. However, Mormonism, while it is polytheistic, it does have a tritheistic emphasis. Because Mormons would say that Elohim or Heavenly Father is a separate ontological being from Jesus, who is also a God or God-like, who is deserving to be worshipped, and the Holy Spirit is a separate God. And so Mormonism would be tritheistic. Uh, In other words, for this planet, they're tritheistic, uh, but they're overall polytheistic with with, uh, an infinite number of gods. Uh, Christians, though, by uh, Unitarian or um, modalistic or Monarchian uh, types of religions, like like, uh, Islam, for example, will often accuse Christians of being tritheists because they simply don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So when you have uh, groups that are not Christian that hold to monotheism, Uh, they will often attack the Trinity as being uh, tritheistic simply because they don't uh, understand the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. So uh, that is uh, the different heresies um, that um, exist within the Christian faith, uh, well, I would say outside the Christian faith, but as are attacks against the Christian faith. And it's good to familiarize yourself with them. So now what we want to do um, in the next section is go through a, a brief defense of the doctrine of the Trinity. And what I would encourage you to do uh, so that you are equipped, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, to always give a, a defense for the reason of the hope that is within you, is to... Uh, uh, understand the doctrine of the Trinity um, there is actually and I'm going to I'll link this in the show notes and I should have had this ready but uh, chalies.com recently did um, a, a 21 or 22 question Trinitarian test which I thought was um, was just fantastic um, and so what I'll do is I will link that in the show notes. And uh, I would encourage you to have, um, you know, some of your friends. uh, I have the group of guys that I meet with for breakfast on Wednesday morning. We went through the test, and I had my wife do it, and uh, she did excellent. She got one question wrong out of all of them, Um, but uh, she did very well on it. And, you know, see how well, you know, maybe your children, if they're a little older, have them take the test. See how well you're doing as a father when it comes to teaching your children uh, and your wives, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. So I'll go ahead and link that in the show notes. I would encourage you to go through that. So um, also if you're you know new to the Christian faith or you don't have a uh, complete understanding of the Trinity, um, maybe you've done like what I've done in the past uh, is spout modalistic type uh, verbiage when trying to explain the Trinity, is I would encourage you to uh, to read some books and to maybe get a few good systematic theologies um, I will i'm going to grab here one book that I really like, and this is uh james white's book, The Forgotten Trinity. I read this uh, i don't know two three years ago, and it is a fantastic work. Um, it's, uh, it's really good. I love how the book starts off. James White says right at the beginning, uh, his very first words in chapter 1 is, I love the Trinity. And that should be us as Christians. We should love the Trinity because the triune God, the uh, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit um, work together in the economy of salvation to bring about salvation for God's people. And so we as Christians are indebted to everything. Our salvation, all of it, is based upon the inner working of the triune God, Um, the eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, the Father giving a particular people to the Son, the Son coming and redeeming uh, those, and the Holy Spirit coming and regenerating and sanctifying us. Uh, So, you know, we as Christians... Uh, should love the Trinity, we should know the Trinity, we should know how to defend the Trinity against these different uh, heresies. The term Trinity actually comes from two words, try and unity, um, three in one unity. Uh, Hodge, and actually here is uh, another resource I would encourage you to check out, is get yourself some good systematic theologies. Uh, I have uh, Charles Hodges. Uh, This is uh, his volume one on his systematic theology. Um, His section on the Trinity is really good. Um, He talks about, um, in there, about how we as Christians uh, naturally um, understand the doctrine of the Trinity even before we clearly come to it in Scripture. For example, he... Hodge brings out the point that uh, we recognize as Christians that there is a divine Creator against whom we have sinned, and there is a divine Redeemer who has saved us, and there is a divine Sanctifier who comes and regenerates us and sanctifies us, and so we see these distinctions as we become Christians, and um, and then as we study Scripture, we can we can clearly see that laid out uh another really good resource and um is uh Wayne Grudem's work. Uh this is a really good readable understandable systematic theology. Uh his section on the Trinity especially his uh his section on uh the Trinity in the uh Old Testament is uh really good. In fact, I borrowed some of his uh stuff uh for this podcast. So I would Check those resources out, but a a good, easy read is uh, James White's uh, The Forgotten Trinity, just a fantastic work. Uh, So, I would encourage you to check those out. So, um, we want to uh, look. I do have an article also on my website, which I've uh, mentioned before, called Shadows of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And you can go check that out. I'll link that also in the show notes so that you can uh, check that out. But uh, I'm going to go through some other texts, which I don't believe I have in that article, uh, just demonstrating the, the triune nature of God. Uh, we'll look at some Old Testament texts, and then we'll go to the more clear revelation of the triune nature of God in the New Testament. And uh, in Genesis uh, chapter... Uh, 1, verses 26 through 27, uh, when God was uh, creating man, he uses three first-person plural pronouns in uh, Genesis one twenty six. It actually says, let us make man in our image after our our likeness. So we see three personal pronouns used, and they're plural personal pronouns, indicating a plurality in the Godhead. And then we also see a oneness in the term um, our and us. Uh, and so we see we see that in Genesis 126. We also see in Genesis 11.7 when God was looking down from heaven and seeing man building the Tower of Babel, you know, trying to reach, you know, up to God. And he said, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one's speech. So notice once again God's use in Genesis of the plural personal pronoun. In Isaiah 6, verse 8, This is one that Grudem brought out, which I really liked. Um, And I hear and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking. Here I am. Send me. So notice here that the voice of the Lord spoke to Isaiah and said, whom shall I send? We have a personal singular pronoun there. And who will go for us? There we have a plural uh, pronoun. Another uh, fantastic example of this is in Psalms forty Psalm forty five, verses uh, verse six and uh, seven. And this is the writer of Hebrews quotes this text in Hebrews chapter one, and uh, beginning in verse six of of Psalm forty five, it says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of a brightness." You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness; Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So notice here, therefore, God, your God, um, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. So we see here that it appears that the, the God that says in Isaiah 43, 10, that there is no God besides me, uh, there is none before me and none after me, uh, there's none like me, it says here that therefore God, your God. So how does God have a God? Well, uh, Jesus referred to the Father as God. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, he wasn't an atheist. He referred to the Father as God. And in fact, the Father himself in Hebrews, um, in quoting uh, this Old Testament text the writer of hebrews attributes this of the father speaking to the son and in hebrews chapter eight or chapter one uh, beginning at verse eight it says but of the son he says your throne o god is forever and ever so notice here we have the father referring to the son as theos or god and um, we see that as being a quote uh, from uh, Psalm 45, 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the Father speaking to the Son. In Isaiah 63, verse 10, uh, we see here, it says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So this is speaking about Yahweh, about God, that uh, the children of Israel have rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit is a force, how can you grieve a force? The fact that um, the Holy Spirit is being grieved indicates his personhood. And so uh, we see the personhood of the Holy Spirit even in the Old Testament. Now, is the doctrine of the Trinity, is this an essential and is this a very important aspect of the Christian faith? and John answers that question for us in 1 John chapter 2 verse 23 it says no one who denies the son has the father whoever confesses the son has the father also now we're going to go through a lot of scripture here that indicates that the son is a person and he is also god and that the father is a person but he is also god And Scripture is very clear. There is only one God. So John is saying here that if you deny the Son, if you deny the personhood of the Son, then you don't have the Father. And if you don't have the Father and you don't have the Son, you don't have salvation. So the triune God belief in the Trinity is an essential of the Christian faith. Now, are these things that we grow in as Christians? You know, did the thief on the cross um, have a uh, scholarly, um, seminarian, uh, systematic theology view of the triune God? No, I don't believe that he did. When I became a Christian, I didn't have that either. But we grow in our knowledge. This Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, and we come to knowledge of those things. Uh, when a person uh, claiming to be a Christian emphatically teaches, um, after coming to know Scripture, emphatically teaches modalism or tritheism or any form of monarchism, they are revealing they are not of God, that they do not have the Father. Um, in John 15, verse 9, Um, It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So we see here that the person of Jesus Christ loves his disciples who are other persons. One person can love another person. But he says here that he loves his disciples in the same way that the Father has loved him. Now, if the Father is simply a different mode, if there's only one person in the Godhead, how does the Father love the Son? That's not possible. There, there must be two persons within the Godhead. We see in the classic baptismal text in Matthew chapter 3, Uh, verses 16 and 17, and it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So here we see he, we have a personal pronoun for Jesus, went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So here we have the person of the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and resting on Jesus, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, whom, with whom I am well pleased. So we see here God the Father using the term I uh, in reference to himself, and that his Son is another person. So we see all three persons of the Trinity here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. We also see the same thing in Matthew 17, verse 5 in the Transfiguration. It says, uh, and he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here we see the different persons of the Godhead speaking of one another. The father here specifically speaking of the son in John 17 Uh, verses 1 through 3 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is one of the most strongest Trinitarian passages of all Scripture. In John 17, verses 1 through 3, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, we also see in the Old Testament where um, I believe it's in Isaiah 44.10, I believe. I have to look up the passage, but I think it's Isaiah 44.10, where it says that God will give his glory to no other. But see here, now it says the um, Father the hour has come to glorify your Son. So notice here, Jesus is saying that God is going to glorify the Son. But God doesn't give his glory to no other. So the only way that this is possible and Scripture is consistent is that if the Son is God himself. Um, Since you have given him, we have here two pronouns again. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, two persons, uh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Very clearly here we see the persons in communication here and in fellowship. In John 17, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me. Once again, um, the God who glorifies none other than himself, um, the different persons within the one being of God, uh, glorify one another. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So before creation— Jesus Christ had glory with the Father. Jesus is speaking to the Father, reminding of the time before the pre-existence, uh, of where they had fellowship. And this goes back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Um, we have uh, with God there, meaning face-to-face is the way the Greek word is there. Face-to-face with one another in a close personal relationship um, and then we have John 17:23 it says uh, I in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me Now notice here that the father loves the son. How can one mode love another mode? And this here, verse 24, becomes even stronger. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So you loved me when? Before the foundation of the world. So this absolutely refutes oneness, Pentecostalism, adoptionism, Um uh sometimes, for example, one as Pentecostals will say that um, you know sometimes that the that the Son is referring to the humanity of God. So God, the one person of God, refers to the incarnated the incarnation is human nature as son. Well, the problem with that is is this is refuted by John 17, verse 23. It says, You loved me, so if If the me here is referring to only the human nature of Christ, how is that possible? Because it says you loved me before the foundation of the world. How's that possible? Uh, The human nature of Christ did not exist before the foundation of the world. So you loved me before the foundation of the world indicates very clearly of the personal nature of the son and the distinct subsistence of the Father in a separate person before the foundation of the world and how they had love for one another. Now, some as um, Pentecostals will say things like, well, you know, God um, uh, loved the concept <laughs> of the humanity of his Son. Well, uh, that's not this personal love that we see here. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Um, God didn't love a concept. God the Father didn't love a concept. He loved God the Son because they were in personal relationship with one another before the foundation of the world. In Matthew 11, verse 27, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see here the sovereignty of the Son uh, in the salvation of those he chooses to reveal the Father to. We see here that uh, no one can know the Father, and no one can know the Son um, except the Father. And those whom the Son chooses to reveal, the Father too. And then we have um, in the Great Commission itself, in Matthew 28, verse 18, uh, a very strong Trinitarian passage. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name, singular, not names, but name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we see here that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share a common name, singular name, the being of God, um, teaching them, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Ephesians 4, verse 30, I want to just briefly touch on the personhood of the Holy Spirit. It says in Ephesians 4, verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So just like we had looked back in Isaiah sixty three ten. Uh, We see here in Ephesians 4:30 that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. A force can't be grieved, only a person can be grieved. So, as you guys all know, back here behind me, behind my head, I have Athanasius. Um, He's right, he's this guy right here. And um, Athanasius is one of the heroes of the faith that I look up to. And. Um Athanasius was one of those who after the Nicene the Council of Nicaea uh, stood up against uh, when basically almost the entire Christian world became Aryan. And it was a well known statement, Athanasius Contra Mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. Uh, when faced with people saying to him, The world is against you, Athanasius, Athanasius replied then I am against the world. And so Athanasius was one of those who fought valiantly for the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And he had, uh, we have what's known as the Athanasian Creed, which we attribute most likely to be from Athanasius himself. And so I just want to read a certain section here of the Athanasian Creed to end out the program today, Um, but uh, I believe this is very important. And so this is something that Athanasius was willing to risk his life for and was willing to uh, die for if necessary, and he lost his post multiple times, had to flee for his life um, many times because of this, because most of the Christian world had become Aryan. In the time of which is dynamic monarchianism, a form of it. So uh, Jesus was only human and was not divine in nature. And so this is the Athanasian Creed. Uh, This is a certain section of it, and I'll start here Uh, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. "'For there is one person of the Father, "'another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. "'But the Godhead of the Father, "'the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. "'The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, "'such as the Father is, such is the Son, "'and such is the Holy Ghost. "'The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, "'and the Holy Ghost uncreated. "'The Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, "'and the Holy Ghost unlimited.' The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal. Yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Ghost is almighty. Yet they are not three Almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Ghost is God. Yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord. Yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge three, every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden by the Catholic religion, which means universal religion, the universal church, to say that there are three gods or three lords. The father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The son is of the father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy ghost is of the father and of the son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one father, not three fathers, one son, not three sons, one Holy ghost, not three Holy ghosts. And in this Trinity, None is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. So we can see Athanasius here held to this doctrine being a fundamental Of the Christian faith. He, therefore, that will be saved, let him thus think of the Trinity. So I hope that that was helpful to you guys today. If you uh, have not always understood some of these and known what some of these terms uh, meant when it comes to uh, Trinitarian heresies, uh, hopefully that will help you uh, in uh, equipping you in defending your Christian faith. So thanks for joining us today. Hopefully you'll join us again next week. And God bless. Deo Valente. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? And through Adam's offense, condemnation came to man inside.